Hi, and welcome to the Reef Roundup podcast, where we dive into marine conservation stories from around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Graham. And I'm Tamara, and we can't wait to dive into this episode. Join us and meet some of the many amazing people who are doing exciting work to save the ocean for future generations, with a focus on restoration, ecology, and environment. We hope today's show is a wake-up call, but also brings you both hope and inspiration as you learn about the amazing work that's being done and how you too can be an ocean champion. Let's get started. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of the Reef Roundup podcast. Today, we'll be talking with Marina Garmendia, who is the co-founder and CEO of the nonprofit Coralisma. She's also completing her master's in marine science at the Nova Southeastern University in Florida. So welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today with you. So can you tell us a little bit about why you started Coralisma and what your experience was with starting a coral restoration organization? So I started Coralisma in 2018 as a nonprofit project. It was first based on my undergrad when I was at Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida. And it was first just like exploring coral reefs and like kind of bringing something back to my country. I'm, I'm Mexican and I had the opportunity to come abroad and do a marine science career here in the U.S. So I always wanted to, to bring something back to my country. And I discovered coral restoration and mainly uh, coral tree nurseries with Coral Restoration Foundation. That was kind of like my first exposure to coral restoration. So I decided to bring that methodology back to Mexico because it was not explored or not used. And it was very successful here in the Keys. So I was like, why don't we have this? So I went to CRS, CRF and got like certified to bring their method back to my country. And I established the first coral tree nursery down in Pulaya del Carmen, Mexico. So this was first just a nonprofit project just to see what happened, if it was successful or not, if it was viable or not. And all of this was done with Isa Rios, my co-founder. It was like we were just friends at school. We just like wanted to do something for our country and we decided to go ahead. Turned out to be very successful. Uh, we actually did part of scientific projects on that too. We we did an exposure on, on our school about like telling them why what this method was successful and why we did it was like something that should be employed down there. And then after that, uh, we needed to like expand more, add more money, add more projects. So like it was just the right time to actually go bigger. So that's when we decided to become a nonprofit organization in 2020. But this was mid-COVID, so a lot of changes happened too. But we were actually able to be established down in Mexico as a nonprofit organization and actually starting to create and develop more projects to bring back to our home country. That's amazing. Tamara and I were actually just talking earlier today about how in many respects, we wish we were further ahead with, you know, Reef Scuba and everything that we're doing. We're a nonprofit also, as you may know. And, you know, like the the pandemic, we were talking about it and saying like, it was both a challenge, but also I don't know if we would have been able to do so much on the just founding an organization, getting the infrastructure in place that we were able to because we weren't working full time and we were sitting at home, like trying to like, you know, follow a passion of ours, of what we cared about, which is, you know, ocean conservation. So yeah, I think founding an organization during that time is something we <laughs> could relate very closely with. Especially I was back in Mexico and like most of this things that you have to do have to be in person and like you have to go to the government and like different establishments and you have you need an accountant and all of these things and like we we're actually both of us on Me in Mexico so we we're like it's now or never <laughs> oh, amazing amazing 
So I was reading about Coralismo's projects and I saw that you guys use sort of a variety of methodologies, the, the coral trees that you mentioned before, but also coral bases. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the differences of those approaches or some of the strengths and weaknesses of your different types of projects. Yeah, so we started with coral trees first. Uh, this was only used for branching corals, such as like Acropora palmata or cervicornis, which are those like branching big corals that actually provide a lot of uh, home for marine fishes. And then that method, it's very successful. Uh, this species are actually in danger of, spe of extinction. So it's like a lot of frustration efforts are focused on this species mainly. However, we all we also wanted to stem out and like use different species, so such as those like boulder big colonies. And then in order to do so, you have to stem into a different restoration method. So I would say both are pretty successful, but they target different species. So it depends on what route you want to do or what restoration method you want to take, which method you're going to use. And then when it comes to bases, uh, this is through microfragmentation. So microfragmentation is a relatively new methodology that consists of cutting those big boulder coral colonies into smaller pieces and when you cut them into smaller pieces what it does is you like it stimulate growth so it's like an open wound you know like you cut your hand and then what your cells what they're gonna do is they're just gonna put all that energy into closing that wound so it happens the same thing with the corals you're creating that wound around them that all their energy is going to be allocated into growing outwards and skirting out to recover that wound so that's what like microfragmentation encompasses. So we wanted to bring microfragmentation down in Mexico, which actually it's, it's done before, but it has never really been like outplanted it. Because microfragmentation is mostly based into in-seed nurseries, so like in aquariums rather than in the open open water. So what we did is uh, we started microfragmentation with three susceptible species that are susceptible to stony coral tissue loss disease that I'm sure everybody knows and everybody has heard of. In Mexico, it hit in 2018, not in 2016. So one of the biggest questions is like, when is the right time to restore the reefs? Like, you know, there's a lot of efforts that were taking those species out because we were losing them. So now there's a lot of aquariums, nonprofits, universities that have stock of of those corals and they've been taking care of them for like six plus years and they don't know when it's the right time to reintroduce them back into the reef. So with this project, it's like a restoration framework where we can reintroduce and increase the abundance of those susceptible species and see what happens. Are they going to get diseased or not? And that's going to answer that bigger question if it, if it is the right time to restore the reef. And we're doing so with microfragmentation because the species that we want to reintroduce is those boulder massive corals. Wow. And then we're doing it with bases. So these bases work as a as their like calcium carbonate structure. And then we just put the tissue on top. And what the tissue does is just skirts out on the base and we're giving them already at like an advantage. We're giving them already a skeleton for them. So that's the idea of those bases. Amazing. And uh, just for our viewers, because we are listeners, viewers, <laughs> for our listeners, because we always, you know, I always like to keep it in the back of my head, like my parents or some of our listeners. And I want to make sure that we're not only talking to people who really know a lot about this already. So for stony coral tissue loss, right? That's something I think we both experienced in person, diving in Mexico, diving in Honduras, diving in the Caribbean. It's insane what's going on. And but can you just talk to the audience a little bit about what that is and the impact it's having, um, especially in the Caribbean, Mexico area? Yeah, so the stony coral tissue disease is like it affects like 22 reef building coral species, which is like an insane amount. <laughs> 
and it causes almost complete mortality. So what happens is that once the coral gets the disease, the tissue starts sloughing off from the coral. And this can happen in matters of days. And it happens to those big coral colonies that have been there for like 100 plus years and then disappear in just matters of days, which is very devastating. Disease actually stemmed off from Southeast Florida. So it was like first discovered in 2014. And it just became an outbreak. And from there, just expanded throughout the Caribbean. And it reached the Mexican Caribbean by 2018. So it was a little bit delayed, but once it hit, it just went all the way down and affected all those same species to their same rate as in Florida. And like what does this disease is has a high rate of transmission and a high rate of prevalence. So it's just as soon as it hits, it just destroys everything. Technically, <laughs> It's pretty devastating because it's just so hard to see those big, massive boulder colonies being dis- like disappearing. One of the main things that a lot of people say is like, you know, as we were going a pandemic, coral reefs were going their own pandemic too. Wow. And that's just like, yeah, called stony coral tissue loss disease. Uh, and the main thing is just this has high rate of, trans- of transmission and high prevalence. It's also not known if it's on the water column, in the sediment, in the tissue. Like it's just been since 2014, there have been so many studies being done. But, you know, science takes time. So there's not really nobody really knows where it comes from or it stems from. So like there's no really a way to eradicate it. You know, there's been a lot of like probiotics and antibiotic pace that they've been developed to put on the corals. But like that's not a sustainable pace. Yeah, it's devastating. I was diving in Honduras and I was on an island that it hadn't hit yet, but the island right over had been hit by it. And like you'd go diving on the two different islands, which are relatively close to each other. And it was just day and night as far as not only if the health of the coral, but so quickly when the coral die, the whole ecosystem around them, fish, et cetera, you know, disappeared too. So that was that was really insane and sad. Yes. And sadly, it affects those bigger colonies more. So like the branching corals are susceptible to that species. However, those bigger, bolder corals, where are the, which are the construction of the reef, are the ones that are being mainly affected. Yeah. So just going back to the microfragmenting technique, for a minute. Of course, it, it must be different in every area of the world or even every reef. But I know I've heard some critiques of this technique, like regarding genetic diversity or just in general, that there might be some challenges with this method as well. I was wondering if you have found a way around those challenges or if you have some kind of response to those critiques. Yeah. So, I mean, as, as I mentioned, microfragmentation is a very new technique. So it's probably started around somewhere in the 2000s, early 2000s. So there's not a lot of science backing it up as like other methods, well, as other restoration methods. However, in Florida, it, it depends on the region. But for example, in Florida, one of the main bottleneck effects for microfragmentation is predation. So there's a lot of fish predation that just like eats out everything you outplant and then you just you reduce whatever you're trying to restore. For example, in Mexico, it was the first time that we reintroduced microfragments to the actual reef. So that's why it was like a big objective and like a big thing that we really wanted to do and like one of our big goals because we don't know what was the fate of those fragments because nobody has ever done it before. So that's why we chose microfragmentation because we really wanted to see what was going to happen. However, uh, microfragmentation, since you put those fragments so small, the fate of them, it's pretty hard. Like they have a lot of stressors such as disease, (laughs) bleaching. Right now we're currently dealing with the most bleaching 
bleaching and highest bleaching event ever recorded. So just bleaching has been insane. Uh, you also have sedimentation, you have microalgae, you have predation. And all of this is just constant stressors for this very small corals for them to deal with. Another big thing too is that you're cutting already sexually mature corals into smaller pieces. And these smaller pieces are going to invest their energy to grow out, not to reproduce. So in some way, you're diminishing this reproductive potential for corals to do so, which is not ideal. I mean, it says that it, a lot of literature says that in like two plus years, it will recover that capacity and like reproduce, but who really knows? <laughs> and then, yes, as you mentioned, uh, genetic diversity. In a way, you're increasing genetic diversity because if you cut that big coral and put it into the reef, you're increasing the numbers. So overall increases that genetic diversity, but of that same coral. But if you cut different genotypes and then spread them out through the reef, you can also increase that genetic diversity. So it just really depends on the way you do it. So like, for example, in Florida, one of the ways that they do microfragmentation is with corals of opportunity. So a coral of opportunity is a coral that's already dislodged. So probably the fate of that coral, it's not too high because either sedimentation or something else is going to potentially kill it. Yeah. So you choose coral that would potentially die that way and you actually use that one for microfragmentation so you're not taking a, a coral that it's already part of the reef okay. where in mexico we have done corals of opportunity and we have also done we actually have those massive big corals where you can just take a chunk of it so you're not sacrificing an already sexually mature coral we're just taking a chunk of it yeah so that methodology it's pretty good but then there's places like florida that you cannot really do that because we are don't have those big corals anymore right. so it really depends how you do it where you do it and what you're targeting that makes a lot of sense the corals of opportunity basically a coral that's been identified as like not having a good chance on its own yes and it just means that it's just like dislodged from the reef gotcha. so kind of like rubble in a sense in a way Gotcha. So it, it, it's not going to be that huge, massive colony, but in a probably a 10 centimeter coral colony that's just dislodged by natural causes. Yeah. And then the fate of it's way less than an actual coral that's attached to the reef. Got it. Yeah, it, it's a very well known term. We actually call it coos, corals of opportunity. <laughs> oh, coos. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of permits that are only allowed to use coos. Okay. So like that's another reason of why a lot of people do their science in coos because you only get permits to use corals of opportunity rather to and actually taking corals out of the reef. Yeah. Gotcha. And so what, one thing that's really fascinating to me, and you know, you're the perfect person to ask about this, is in the States, right? My understanding is that there's a lot of amazing science that's been done about taking care of coral, coral conservation, etc. However, you know, we also have this really sad story, especially with the most recent bleaching in Florida, just incredible die-off from a variety of different factors. And we're also doing work in Mexico. And I'm just wondering... I'm interested in hearing, you know, differences that you've seen both in like techniques, infrastructure, scientific, you know, methodology and success rates, you know, because I don't know if Florida has just been hit harder because it's under more stress from, you know, higher population, overfishing, etc. Or if, you know, Mexico is in some ways doing a better job. What, what are your thoughts about that? All right. Just to add on to that, also, 
any differences, like you said, about getting the permits from the government or bureaucratic issues, if there are? Yeah, well, that's going to be a long answer. Some <laughs> <laughs> does the differences day and night. <laughs> okay. Generally day and night. In Florida, for example, there's just, when it comes to coral reefs, in Florida, there's so much more money. There's so much more jobs. There's so much more grants and there's government support. In Mexico, there's no jobs, no money, no government support. Okay. So that's just everything, right? Yeah. So that's why uh, Coralisma is based on bringing things from the U.S. to Mexico. Because in Mexico, I'm not going to get anything. There's generally no grants that support coral reefs. No NOAA, no DP, FWC, nothing. Yeah. So then it's just very challenging to do science if there's no money. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, there there is, of course, nonprofits and uh universities and some government facilities doing coral restoration and they're not behind like they they're doing the right things their science is correct but they just don't have the resources for the people so it's just a very slow disorganized process because they just but we're very creative (laughs) and they manage to do some stuff but not to the rate that the U.S. is doing it. Uh, however, my my work is focused on the Puerto Morelos National Park, which is uh, in Quintana Roo, very close to Cancun area. So it's between Cancun and Tulum, which is the two main places that everybody knows. <laughs> the park is right in the middle. It's a national park. It's actually very well protected and very well monitored. Or like, I mean, we actually have people that protect it which is another big thing that lacks in most areas in Mexico. But actually, this park is very well protected and it actually started more by the people rather than by the government. So there was a lot of interest in this park and the community of Puerto Morelos, which which was a small fishing village, decided to create an MPA, a marine protected area, because of how resourceful this park was. But this is an exception to the rule, (laughs) right? Yeah. And then... uh, but this park right now, well, it was bleaching is killing it, but it was thriving. Like compared to the recent in Florida overall, even in the Keys, the park is way better in terms of coral cover, coral abundance, health. But we just don't have enough resources to actually know how well it is doing. And also, you know, the infrastructure, I mean, like Cancun is a very tourism area. There's definitely a lot of developments, a lot of hotels and everything. But it it was a delayed start compared to Miami. So the stressors that we have in that area are delayed compared to what we have here. So it's probably here we are talking about maybe at least 10 plus more years of that uh, constant damage to the reefs rather than in that area so there's a lot of things both good and bad water quality both places pretty bad (laughs) when it comes to the government that's the worst part (laughs) i mean like working here in florida getting permits getting grants is relatively easy as long as you're doing things right in mexico it's a full challenge like it's just bureaucracy is very high it's very hard to be connected very hard to get in basically ruled by a small inner circle that everybody just went to the same school and are on the same area and then so they won't let anybody on the other side go in if that makes sense (laughs) so it is very hard so like yeah when we started Coralism it took us at least a year to be able to figure it out how to even move around it (laughs) but yeah it's it's very hard 
Amazing. Well, that was such an incredible answer to an unfairly complicated question. So thank you. Yeah, I hope I answered to the most of it. But... <laughs> I did. Thank you. Wow. I mean, speaking of Puerto Morelos, I think you told me that your thesis is talking about whether or not this national park would be ready for the introduction of susceptible species. I was just wondering, how do you know if it's ready or how do you measure this? How do you measure the success of these projects or what does ready mean to you well yeah i mean it's my thesis so it's like 10 <laughs> questions to to say why it's ready but it's uh so my thesis is part of that basis with microfragmentation. so again is that the idea of reintroducing this susceptible species back in the park and see see what happens and the success is being measured by different variables so one of the variables is tracking the fate of the survival of this microfragments to see uh if they are surviving if they are not and what it's killing them Either they are getting bleached, they are getting diseased, they are getting predated. Sedimentation is a threat. Uh, microalgae is a threat. And we're also doing uh, roving divers. So roving diver, it's when a diver goes around a delineated area and they are counting how many natural colonies are in that area and if they are healthy or diseased. So then that way I can have a disease prevalence from that area. So I can know that, let's say, 10% of the natural colonies are, are diseased. And then I have the same method on a control area. So a control area, it's less than 500 meters away from my outplant area. And I'm doing the same thing, roving diver on a delineated area where they are counting how many natural colonies are diseased and how many are healthy. So then that way I have the disease prevalence of both areas from the same site. Okay. Once I have that, I'm doing that on every monitoring period. So I did it before I put the microfragments, during the microfragments, and basically at the end. So this is a one-year project. And then that way, I can see if that disease prevalence is increasing, decreasing, or staying the same. The same. So if that disease prevalence increases on my outplant areas, it means that the addition of microfragments is increasing that disease prevalence on the outplant sites. But if it's increasing on the control area, then it's not by microfragmentation for my microfragments, it's just by the environment. Right. Yeah. It's a little complex, but it's... <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. It's just, yeah, the, I, the main idea is to see if the introduction of this susceptible species is increasing disease on the natural areas or not. And if it does, then you can say that adding and increasing abundance will increase disease. Okay. But so far, it has not. Oh. So <laughs> insider information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm graduating in December. So my thesis is being, I'm defending in December. So right now I'm writing my thesis, uh, actually. Good luck. <laughs> Amazing. And I, I, I that's know, why that's very fresh. <laughs> <laughs> I know with temperature variables, there's the whole concept of identifying coral that are, you know, seem to have survived these temperature fluctuations <laughs> and breeding or out, out planting those. Is does the same apply in this um circumstance? So for this specific project, no. Okay. But for different projects, yes. So that's like a thermotolerant coral, which is the ones that resist those constant challenges in temperature or those fluctuations in temperature. So we did have a, we called hobologgers, which is kind of like a thing that records temperature on the water. We have them during my experiment. 
And sadly, in Puerto Morelos, uh, the temperature was recorded up to 34 Celsius. So that's like how bad it spiked in early August, which is the last time I checked. So that's just insane. Sadly, when I was there the first week of August and everything was absolutely white, uh, the park is actually well known for their palmata colonies, which is an elkhorn coral, which is like everybody loves and it's black in Florida. Uh, That park is like every place you go, there was an elkhorn. Like you would not be on a dive without seeing one. And every single one of them was white. And right now, every single one of them, it's almost dead. So that's the saddest part ever. Yeah, I think that park will not have any more elkhorn very soon, which is devastating. (laughs) And um, but yeah, so the idea is like, I think restoration projects right now, it's going to be targeting those thermotolerant projects, those thermotolerant corals and uh, trying to restore and reproduce those surviving species. But it's Right now, it's too soon, you know, like if whatever survived is very, very stressed. Yeah. So you have to wait a little to do anything with them. Yeah. And, you know, bleaching events are just coming more frequently and then they're staying longer. So it's hard to, to tell when it's the right time. Yeah, totally. And with stony tissue loss disease, are there also some colonies that are more likely to survive than others? And are there any like studies that have started to identify why that might be if so yeah i mean my in like not saying on the science background like what i've seen so yeah. far yeah. it's a uh, sctld has target bigger colonies so those like massive two meter plus colonies are the main target once those vanish then it goes to like a smaller category until it starts, you know, targeting even the baby ones. But it's kind of like a ladder. So like in Florida, we're definitely in the intermediate to smaller ones because there are no bigger ones anymore. So that's why we say that it's not on a spike anymore. It's just because they already killed almost everything. Oh. <laughs> in Mexico, you can still see those massive corals being, yeah. being diseased. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just like corals are thermotolerant. There are corals that, are, that have survived the disease. And I mean, I guess it's just matters of studies to see what really is in there. I know most of the studies are targeting into Susan Thiel. So, you know, Susan Thiel, that symbiotic relationship with, um, with the coral, it's an algae. And they say that a lot of, that the Susan Thiel might be the carrier of stony coral tissue loss disease. Wow. So a lot of studies have been targeting in Susan Thiel rather than in the actual coral, but there's nothing really out there yet. And actually there's a relation with when bleaching happens, there's less disease because Susan Thiel is expelled. So then it's not a carrier of disease anymore because the corals don't have it. So there's been some positive relation there, but nothing really concrete. We've been following the bleaching going on in Florida recently, and it's just, I mean, it's heartbreaking. And it's hard to know how to process, you know, emotionally something in an environment that you care about so much. And especially when you're working in it day to day and studying it, I imagine it's even more so, right? Like, how are you processing this? Yeah, no, it's it's definitely really hard. So, I mean, 
I haven't been in the Keys this season yet, so I haven't really seen the bleaching. I've, I mean, plenty of videos and photos and whatnot, but I haven't personally seen it. Here in Broward County, we haven't really experienced bleaching as much. We have seen some paling, but nothing like the Keys. Okay. But Mexico, devastating. And that's where, like, you know, my babies are. Okay. <laughs> and that's, like, my site. So, no, in Mexico has been devastating. And, like, you know, I have contact with the people that are still doing some monitoring right now. And it, every day is just, like, it's worst, it's worst, it's worst. Now they are not white. Now they are completely dead. Now there's no palmata on this site, no palmata on this one. Like, it's, you know, kind of moving along. Uh, especially uh, the park, it's a fringing reef. So it's more like a lagoon. So there's not a lot of water movement. So water is just kind of being stuck. So it's just like a hot tub. So there's not a lot of like inputs of refreshing water. So it's just, you know, constant heat for the squirrels. So now, yeah, it is. It's really sad. And it's also really sad that I mean, like, how many videos and photos have you seen from Mexico versus how many photos and videos have you seen from Florida? True. So that's also, you know, very yeah. hard. Yeah. And we have not been, we have not gotten like government support, funding support, uh, outreach support. So like really what is happening in Mexico, it's silent. Nobody really knows. Yeah. And the spotlight definitely has been the keys, but you know, it's boiling it everywhere else. It's yeah. just not here. Bahamas is the same story. Bahamas is doing really, really bad. Uh, I was in Puerto Rico last week. I was in Culebra Island, which is kind of on the other side. And Culebra was fine. But the south area of Puerto Rico, they have experiencing bleaching now. But, you know, as you go down in the Caribbean, kind of the heat is a little bit delayed. So Puerto Rico is supposed to have its highest temperature spikes mid-September. So, you know, like this time will be where we really know what's going to happen there. But but it is, it is very sad, very devastating. I mean, like, are we going to have enough coral to keep being coral restorationers? <laughs> I mean, on that note, what gives you hope about the future of coral around the world? And how do you push through these depressing times and kind of keep putting your all into your work yeah so i mean you know like there's been this is not the first bleaching event this is not the first disease we have corals have been experiencing disease since we have seen coral you know like since we actually have registered disease events since like the 90, 1980s and it's just like they have been constantly being exposed to different stressors so i mean it's they will recover, but you know, to like what what it's gonna take for us to do something to let them be, <laughs> you know, they cannot just yeah. be constantly stressing out, dying, 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 and then until we do something for them. There's, I mean, there's different systems. For example, the Veracruz Reef System, which is also located in Mexico, but this is on the Gulf area. The Veracruz System had experiencing a lot of stress before the Caribbean started feeling this stress so the gulf had first you know the wave and then it kind of like delayed to the caribbean okay. and right now the gulf is doing amazing so actually the veracruz reef system is the only reef system in outside the world that it's experiencing coral increase in cover rather than decrease wow and we don't really know why <laughs> so i really want to get into veracruz system and figure out what's <laughs> going on there yeah you can do but i mean you know coral come you know it doesn't come and go but it, it recovers and like it really we put our energy on it we can definitely not bring it back but at least recover some of those losses yeah i was at the international coral reef symposium last year i saw that you presented a poster there right 
Yeah, amazing. Yeah, so I probably saw you there because I went around and looked at all the posters. But one of the presentations that I really remember that struck a chord with me was that Coral Scientist was saying that through the decades he's worked with Coral, like he's seen these different eras of extreme loss. And then with a lot of work and also the magic of the ocean repairing itself. But of course, not when it's being hit by 10 different sides in a lot of, you know, ways that it's never experienced before. But he was saying even in times where he thought it was really hopeless, he had seen like incredible, you know, return of coral and its ability to fight back. But I think the difference maybe of a lot of the ear of what he experienced is just the number of stressors and impacts that are all hitting coral from different sides and also that it's happening on such a global scale. What are your thoughts, if any, on on that? I mean, you know, yeah, like phase shifts, that's like one of the main big things in corals too. Like, you know, we first have those big structures, very healthy coral, and then we kind of overfishing happens. So we went down a level and then, you know, like that Terry Hughes diagram and then, you know, like sea urchins and we went down a level and then you know kind of like constantly going down and down and down to the point where we're gonna get those like weedy species which doesn't really provide a structure doesn't really provide an ecosystem but it's coral so i mean like you know over time i don't think we're gonna really lose the system we're just gonna have a functional one yeah that's the hard part that's what we're losing yeah just a functioning healthy ecosystem because we'll see coral we'll see those weedy species but not a coral reef you know like one thing that i was excited when we started looking at you know everything that you're doing with coralisma to see is just that you're not only doing staghorn coral because i think because it grows so fast it can be a very attractive to start working with when you're doing coral restoration just because like You can actually see it grow in a short amount of time, you know, like weeks or months. And it seems like when you're measuring the actual structure that's being put back into a coral reef, you know, there's an emotional like, oh my gosh, it's actually working, you know? But of course, I think we know by now that we need many different types of coral, many of them slow growing coral to actually form the whole ecosystem that is, like you said, a thriving coral reef. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you chose the coral species that you're working with and like, and why? Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. Like if you see any Caribbean projects, most of them are definitely targeting those fast growing branching species yeah. rather than targeting those slow growing boulder corals. Yeah. But I mean, as a part of restoration, you cannot only focus your all your efforts on, on branching coral. Like if you go to an ecosystem, there's so much diversity, there's so much everything that you need. It's a combination of methods. So like you cannot just focus your efforts on one side rather than it's like a mixture of all of them. Yeah. So, you know, at the beginning when I was a young scientist, I was like, oh, I'm just going to find the best method and like replicate it everywhere. And then that's it. But no, it's just, it's a mixture, you know, like you need, you need the branching, you need the slow ones, you need the Gorgonians, like it's, you need a function ecosystem and that equals diversity. So it's a little bit of everything. And then I decided to target the slow growing species because we didn't have that restoration in Mexico. The only one that we had was based on branching ones. And we needed to complement that too. And after stony coral tissue loss disease, what that disease target was was those slow, massive species rather than those branching ones. So then I'm not going to say that we had a lot of branchings, but we were definitely lacking more of those slow 
pull their corals. Nice. So that's why I decided to target it in that one. As well as it's something that I learned in the U.S. and like was exposed in the U.S. So I wanted to kind of bring that technology back to Mexico. And definitely doing microfragmentation is more money, more time, more facilities because you need an, a system. You need an actual nursery, an actual system to cut those corals and to get those fragments. So it just takes way more logistics, more time, more money, more efforts to be able to do it. And luckily, I figured that out. So then once, you know, that hard part went, we were like, yeah, definitely, let's just do microfragmentation. And uh, the species that I chose were those uh, susceptible species and those species that were very abundant in the park before. So that's why we, we target those species. And now I also wanted variety of species because I cannot just only focus on one and see how they do. I needed a little bit of variety to see what was successful and what was not. Amazing. We had interviewed a gentleman on the podcast about a year and a half ago who had worked with the Marina Mexico and set up a system which in a certain degree of warming or hurricane situation would automatically get some funding, some insurance to help with coral restoration. And I was wondering... I heard that had been activated and the Mesoamerican Reef specifically. So I heard that had been activated at some point. Like, are are you familiar with that? Have you heard anything about it? Like, did did it work at all? So actually, my project is part of that. Oh, (laughs) wow. (laughs) I mean, yes and no. But (laughs) so there's insurance that you can apply for as a country. A country applies for this insurance. So if a hurricane happens, you can get money towards your reefs. So, I mean, yeah, actually, this was a big thing that the government actually did, and that was very effective. But the hurricane that we targeted for, I think it happened in like 2019 or something like that. I don't really remember which hurricane was or which year, but they were able to get the funding and it was like millions of dollars. And this funding was given to our NOAA to actually distribute it, which it's called uh, Semarnat. And Semarnat, one of the main branches is Inapesca, which is with the ones that I work with. And Inapesca got a lot of this funding and they developed like a restoration plan. And this restoration plan was not only done by this institution, multiple institutions were kind of doing an like a all together doing something. So like they targeted sexual recruits, they targeted microfragmentation, they targeted branching corals, they targeted nurseries, monitoring, reattaching those falling fragments that happened from the hurricane. So it was like a huge plan to restore the reef post hurricane it was very successful but the hurricane happened and they didn't got the money till like probably two years later so that immediate action which is the main thing that you need the money for was not possible okay very sad but at least they were able to do this management plan and restore at least some of this reef so my microfragments the number of my microfragments count towards that restoration plan. Amazing. Okay, cool. We'll have to share the episode in the show notes here with, again, that we did this previous recording on. And his this insurance policy was based on the money being released immediately as soon as the event happened and it not having to go through bureaucracy and stuff. Because I think the example was this, where it took two years to release. I mean, as anyone in this field knows, like if you're going to try to save anything after a big disaster, like the sooner the better. The day so, after, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was, yeah, it was towards the Mesoamerican Reef System, but basically more to Mexico. And I mean, that's what I know from the government side. I don't know 
from like uh on the other side but yeah, yeah that, that's what i've heard okay cool and then my other question which again like if, if there's an answer great if not no worries <laughs> so uh, our next interview on the podcast is going to be with the alan coral atlas who of course do incredible imagery of reefs around the world and try to monitor as much as possible in real time the health of coral reefs and bleaching events and such like that have you used that technology or any other technologies i mean it could be drones it could be whatever you know that or, or you see possibility in any of these technologies that you've been exposed to i do know the coral atlas but i haven't personally used it we do use sometimes when like in broward county especially for bleaching they did ask us if we ever saw like spottings of bleaching to definitely like put them in this mapping programs but we haven't really spot anything <laughs> so we haven't pretty up- uploaded it as much but i i think it's very good especially for SETLD. you know they started putting us throughout the caribbean and you were able to know in real time when the outbreak was happening where and what areas so i definitely benefit from those technologies for sure again personally i haven't really used them but for dcs for bleaching and for i mean SETLD was not the first and not the last outbreak. We're going to keep having those. So definitely incorporating these technologies and targeting areas in need. It's very beneficial. And then in terms of technology, we are moving towards photo mosaics and 3D model techniques, which is definitely the future in coral reefs. And then... What is a photo mosaic? I'm not familiar with that term. So photo mosaic is a collection of images being stitched together to create a wider image so let's say if i want to take an area it's a delineated area you put targets on them and then you take multiple photos like thousands of photos at a time depends on on the area and then you stitch them together using computer programs and that stitching gives you a photo mosaic that big image i'm not an expert on photo mosaics at all (laughs) It's the new technology that a lot of core restorationers and scientists are using. And one of the advantages is that it's incre- it decreases time and increases efficiency, which is one of the main things as a restorationer. You're always trying to look for things that can save you time and save you money. <laughs> so photo mosaics is definitely one of those techniques and one of those technologies. And uh, in a certain area with those photo mosaics, you can upload them into different softwares and answer different questions, such as uh, coral abundance, rugosity. You can even look at the invertebrates on the reef. You can even target specific corals. You can see the bleaching. You can see the DCs. It really depends what you're looking for, the resolution you're giving to the area you want. However, it's it's softwares that are very new and not as user-friendly. So it's going to take time to, for the science community to actually learn those technologies. Yeah. And mostly the people that are using them are computer scientists. Yeah. So that's, I would say, one of the disadvantages that it's not something that like, oh, yeah, let me just Google it and, uh, and it's done. Yeah. It takes time to download those programs. You need computer power to get those programs. They are expensive programs. But once established... And you know how to do it. It's very easy. But starting off, it's very hard. So definitely there's a lot of potential on them. But it's going to take some time for the entire community to switch to that, if that makes sense. But there's a lot of advantages that come from. And we're actually starting a new project with photo mosaics and 3D models in Puerto Morelos. So... Fingers crossed. <laughs> wow. Okay. Have you heard anything to do with like AI being used in any way with coral restoration? And if so, like what, how? <laughs> yeah. So definitely AI, it's 
gonna be the future too like everything one of the main softwares that it's being used for photo mosaics is metashape and there are multiple ones called viscore tag lab but there's just different softwares depends on what you want to do yeah but you're happy training the software so you start at the beginning at the beginning you kind of have to tell the software what species what and over time the ia it's gonna determines that by by itself so it's you know as it's going to be a lot of work at the beginning but if you really train the computer over time it's going to be matters of a click so you know if you tell the ia oh this is acropora palmata then it's going to learn what it is and when you upload that imagery it's going to highlight it for you so it's definitely being used by i mean you know ia has errors has everything but it's it's just going to take it's a slow process and as we know the science community is mostly dominated by old school people or (laughs) So it's gonna take time to accept it. But I mean, like, like for me, a challenge was social media for older person. I don't want to say old people, but social media was kind of hard to cope with. They were like, "Why are you investing time on this?" Or like, "Why do we need it?" But it's so important. Like, if you don't tell the people what you're doing, then it doesn't matter. You know, like, there's not gonna be a change. And like, I think a change it has to be together. Like, I cannot just restore, restore, restore. But if you don't do your part, then it doesn't make sense. So it has to be kind of together. And like social media has that power to reach out to wider audiences. So it was a challenge to kind of make sure people understand that. And like, I think restorationers should target so much social media and be part of their plan and part of their goals and part of their objectives. And not a a lot of people believe on it. And I think it's powerful. I'm actually (laughs) presenting poster about the importance of social media and corporate <laughs> 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 that sounds like a fun topic yeah actually on that note then do you have any advice or messages that you want to leave our listeners with or who want to get involved or care about the fate of corals but maybe aren't sure how to incorporate that in their own lives do you have some advice to leave with them I mean, definitely, I would say education. It's very important. So, you know, like educate yourself, see what's out there, see why corvies are important. And like, you, you're you not going to care for something that you don't know. So definitely like being educated on the topic is going to change your perspective and change your willingness to take care of that, or take care of our environment. And then, I mean, one way to start is definitely follow us on social media, <laughs> see what we're doing. Yeah, you can follow us on Instagram at the... Coralisma underscore MX, or you can visit our webpage at www.coralisma.com. Uh, you can register as a diver, you can register into our newsletter, or you can donate to our projects. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, like you don't need to be a diver, you don't need to be a scientist, you don't need to be any of this to actually help coral reefs with either just learning about them. Um, donating uh changing something in your life will benefit the ecosystem you just you don't need to be a scientist for doing so and it just you know takes one person to care so the change is in our hands beautiful well yeah please everyone make sure to go and follow along i know we've really enjoyed following your social media and you know checking out your website and been inspired by videos and photos and also, one thing that was really cool is just being able to donate to an actual like base 
that's one of these outplanings of coral. And, you know, I guess sometimes you inscribe like names or, you know, uh, companies or something if you wanted to donate to build a specific part of, of these reefs. So definitely check that out. I thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to have you. Um, it's always so nice to have a conversation with someone who's knowledgeable, passionate, and where you can just see that they're dedicating their life to something that that touches us very deeply too. So thank you for all your work. Of course. No, thank you guys for the time and for being able to talk in this. You know, I can talk about coral forever. So. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for joining us for another edition of the Reef Roundup podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please take a moment and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to add us on Instagram at Reef Roundup for news about the ocean, inspiring stories, and more. You can also find more about us as well as our guests at reefroundup.com. We release a new episode every two weeks. See See you soon. soon.